Howdy, y'all. Okay, that that sounds kind of yeehaw, so let me let me just start that over. I am going to give my signature greeting that I give to all my friends. So are we ready? <clears throat> hello, hello. This is your one and only speaker of the night. My name is Sarah. You can also call me Sarah as I grew up in a super white town. And, you know, pretty much heard this pronunciation um, all my life. But, you know, my actual name is Sarah. I use they, them pronouns, but she, her pronouns are also fine to use. Uh, just as a heads up, a lot of coughing and clearing my throat will have to be tolerated as I'm recovering from my very first flu. So fun. <laughs> so, in this episode, we will talk about a very interesting topic that I've been pondering on for a while. Well, to be realistic though, it was actually a topic touched upon in my feminist queer trans theories class at my institution. Yes, you heard that correctly. Um, a class like that, in fact, does exist, and I may or may not be incorporating the content I have learned from this powerful course into this episode. Um, except this is high-key my own little conversation to myself, really, using my own interpretations and personal experiences. But by, like, backing up with their, their, their oh my god, wow, theorists, I've learned more about. And as you can already tell, this will be a super casual with my stuttering pauses and all that crap. Maybe kind of all over the place at first, uh, if not already. But hopefully very informative in the long run. So, where was I? In this episode, we will discuss and break apart a very unique, underrated, yet necessary concept known as queer future. And yes, let me repeat that again. Queer future. You must be already thinking, what the hell does that even mean? What does that even look like? Could it be some type of utopian shit where like the future is like primarily queer people dominating the world? Um, could it be something as simple as queer liberation? Could it be that there isn't a queer future to exist given our super heteronormative, wow, heteronormative society today? And to be quite honest with you, I have yet to figure all this out completely. Like I said before, I pondered on this as a senior in high school, uh, which is back in 2020. Not that long ago. Feels like it, though. Uh, the moment I learned about like the Stonewall riots and what the queer liberation movement in the 60s represented, um, learning this history as like a 17-year-old at the time made me question our present today and what we can do now to impact the future. However, I could still not answer that question about the future. Fast forward to now, as a fresh 20-year-old college student and activist, I can attest that I often think about the same question I asked myself back in high school. The only difference is now I can sort of dissect this and start somewhere. So let me repeat the questions again as I've said a lot so far. We are only still in the introduction here. So what does queer future look like to me? And what can we do to get there? Quick note, this is what I have to bring to the table regarding this topic. So aside from the theory I will use for like support and evidence, these are all my insights on what I see for the future. Um, so if I use languages like I, we, I'm personally talking about myself, um, for the most part. But this episode will be divided into a few sections, given, given that there's going to be a lot to be talked about. So these sections, uh, in particular order, will be including introducing three notable queer feminists, trans theorists, and their written pieces, analyzing the present system that we as a collective human population are living in, and then my final answer to the number one question— what is queer future to me? 
By answering this question, I am going to start off with an excerpt from, from a powerful theory that I have read at the beginning of this course. In the beginning of her piece titled Theory as Libertary Practice, Bell Hooks, may she rest in power, I love that woman, she describes theory as a healing place or a healing process. She later adds the following two statements. The first one being, quote, When our lived experience of theorizing is fundamentally linked to processes of self-recovery, of collective liberation, no gap exists between theory and practice. The second statement is, quote, Theory is not inherently healing, liberatory, or revolutionarily. Wow, revolutionary. It fulfills this function only when we ask that it do so and direct our theorizing towards this end. Quote end. When reading these lines for the very first time in September 2022, when I took this course, I questioned myself what Hooks meant by defining theory as libertary practice, as well as a healing process. In my own understanding of book, uh, Hooks' foundation, I first took theory as a combination of both speaking or expressing your ideas and experiences into some type of words, and then acting upon these words that have been spoken. In other words, expressing these ideas in both words and in actions is one compelling force that theory can offer. Now, this may sound confusing, so we're gonna delve in a little deeper here. Looking at theory on a much more personal level, healing process to me means analyzing yourself, approaching and confronting things about yourself to process your experiences. So when writing theory, what may often occur in the theorist somehow ca categorizing these experiences in a way where others who have dealt with similar and unique experiences take a step back and self-reflect on themselves. The audience or readers of, you know, said theory... Uh, may have never seen their own thoughts and experiences even written into words before. So this where self-reflection is beyond a spectrum. It can look like pretty much anything among uh, the audience, even the theorists themselves. So nonetheless, it is crucial to know that this is where the pair of words of uh, actions, uh, a pair of words and actions intertwine together to form a bigger meaning and a, a call for the message the theorist is trying to portray in their work. Uh, does this make sense? I wish I had a literal audience right now to have them answer this directly. Um, but if you are still confused, note that understanding Bell Hook's take on theory will be easier to understand by reading more examples in other theorists' work. I know that sounds like a lot, but trust me, it took me a while to understand this as the semester passed by. So I don't expect this to be learned in a single podcast episode. But we will go slowly and just note right here that the power of seeing theory as a healing process, which can be acted through analyzing, confronting your own self and experiences, is one of the key factors I consider when looking at the queer future. This will all make sense soon. I promise. The next section of this podcast, I guess if you'd like to call it that, is incorporating my interpretation of Hook's foundation on theory by looking at other theorists. In addition to the queen hooks herself, two theories have stuck with me while taking the feminist queer trans theories course. Sherry Moraga's Laguera, I do not know if I mis or pronounced that right, I'm sorry. And Susan Stryker's iconic My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Shamunei Performing Transgender Rage. Uh, we will shorten this to My Words to Frankenstein or Stryker's piece uh, for the sake of time. Um... Starting off with the piece titled La Guerra, which translates to fair-skinned, Sherry Moraga was doing quite a lot more storytelling, with a lot of personal anecdotes from her life in this theory. 
These anecdotes were in response to people setting in the privilege of any identity that is deemed superior or the majority, quote-unquote majority. In this case, Moraga was responding to the socially constructed idea that white is right, aka white supremacy. We do not like that. And then heteronormativity. Even though Moraga was technically part of an impressed community before, uh, aka her lesbianism on biggest plot twist my bad uh her light skin color made it easy to hide and easy to escape that oppression that was put on to you know her shikana mother so she as in moraga was to be raised in a way where the more white she acts especially given the light skin that she already had the more opportunities and benefits are ensured for her again white is better uh i don't mean that seriously but that was the mindset back then and even to this day but it was not until her coming to terms with her lesbianism as well as her Chicano heritage during her college years where Marga recognized this quote-unquote oppressor within herself. This oppressor within herself is the whiteness. So through the utilization of personal anecdotes like this one, Moraga enunciates that recognizing the oppressor within yourself is one of the crucial factors when having discussion about feminist theory. Um, so, like, one of the powerful quotes that highlights the theme of her work is the following statement. <coughs> Had to cough. Um, it is essential that radical feminists confront their fear of and resistance to each other, because without this, there will be no bread on the table. Simply, we will not survive. The real power, as you and I well know, is collective. I can't afraid to be of you, nor you of me. If it takes head-on collisions, let's do it. This this polite timidity is killing us. End quote. Confrontation and difficult dialogues are the only mechanism in which improvement and betterment can be achieved. In other words, there needs to be real discussions without the fear of them not ending well. It is not until we have those honest and raw conversations that we can really come together in solidarity against our oppressors, our real oppressors. Now, let us take a whole step back from all of this and first address what was literally just analyzed. Um, This idea of recognizing the oppressor within yourself as well as holding difficult conversations synthesizes smoothly into what Bell Hook's argument about the combination of talking and acting in theory, aka how we need to talk before we can act. Um, Moraga successfully demonstrates this as well as Hook's definition of theory being used as a healing process. Moraga talking about her personal experiences and the meaning behind them into, you know, literally the words in the theory, as well as calling for action regarding these said themes in her theory is one prime example of how Bell Hooks visions theorists and even the audience to engage with the written information information illustrated. Moraga's anecdotes and quote-unquote lessons... I don't know why I said quote-unquote lessons. They are lessons. It's not only her theory constructed, but also her own way of healing with her past self in order to move forward in the future. La Guerra is only one of the phenomenal pieces that has made me resonate with my own privileges, especially as someone with several identities intersecting, yet I also have, you know, several oppressors within myself. So here are some rhetorical questions that you, the audience, uh, could consider after going over this podcast section of theorizing. What gives us privilege and power? What's something we have that other people don't? And how do we move forward? A common thread seen so far is confronting lived experiences as well as initial or current internalized quote-unquote isms. And when I say isms, I mean like, you know, words like racism, sexism, with the ISMM, you know, at the end. Uh, and moving forward. 
So all of this right here is only one further step to my answer about queer future. The next stop to reach our destination, though, is Susan Stryker. So, you know, we talked a little bit about, about you know, like, Moraga and Hooks and, like, their written theory. Um, I already express how I believe it's very powerful in their own distinctive style. And this is the same exact stance that I will place on Stryker's theory titled My Words to Frankenstein. To say her piece is a healing process and correlates to Hook's perspective on theory is an understatement of the year, I swear to God. Initially a complicated read, dissecting this piece was quite fascinating to me. Her theory was what some academic structures, such as mine from the same class I mentioned at my university, would call a performance paper. Stryker's piece about gender and transness through the language of Frankenstein and unique like literary devices was quite captivating and it made like the theory quite distinct from the other ones I've ever read in the course. You know, like she was expressing the anger and rage. She was even dividing, you know, like the performance paper into like several sections, you know, Stryker like divided into like monologues, journal entries, stream of consciousness, even added like some type of poem. And like, I don't know, the way that she assembled all of these, like some type of like puzzle. Oh my God. It, it was just, it was, I see the whole thing as an artwork, like. The assemblement of the entire piece revolves around, like, you know, like, the trans I transgender identity and, like, you know, Stryker's own experiences regarding how she knew she is a trans woman. It just made sense, like, the way that she, like, made it, like, a little puzzle piece. That's, like, the best way to describe it. But her piece is quite distinct from most theories that are written. And in a weird way, weird as in, like, good way, like, it complements uh, Hook's perspective on theory quite well. And, like, using Frankenstein-related devices to get the point about trans the uh, transgender theory across is what truly made me realize what Hooks was trying to express about the healing processes. I quite honestly felt like I was living in Stryker's own mind and what she was trying to evoke in her theory. So needless to say, uh, Stryker's performance paper has inspired me to create my own paper regarding my own anecdotes revolving around gender. Even though it was an assignment, uh, I was still inspired to do something like this regardless. Um, I centered my story uh, in my performance paper around the ambiguity of my gender, which is combated by like, you know, heteronormative standards and the gender binary, seen through beauty standards and like, you know, physical appearances. I am rambling. But, you know, regardless, I figured I should throw in Stryker as a powerful figure when looking at theory, given her striking talent. That was a horrible pun. And uh, ending with that, I shall move on to the next section of this podcast. Um, so, moving on. Since I have not necessarily touched on the queer future in a while, and yes, I have saved this as one of the very last sections, um, let's first address the obvious current society that we are in right now to the second excuse my language not very academic of me but uh our current society today is super fucking heteronormative heteronormativity has a definition in our society and constructs the way that we already live there is this default like chronological timeline for like when factors such as marriage developing a family having a job after like post high school education etc a lot more should occur um there are extremely problematic notions about these type of timelines other than the fact that it's so boring and very much what i like to call a heterosexual cookie cutter of a lifestyle yes heterosexual cookie cutter feel free to use that phrase um it is also not really realistic majority of the time like these timelines and why 
To simply put it, because life throws shit at you to the point where you might not be able to follow this plan of getting married, having kids, or even earning a degree after high school. Um, Some of the stuff may not occur in this particular order that our society expects us. Um, And shit might come in the way, like I said. And this includes, but not limited to, you know... Uh, becoming infertile, not being able to, you know, have a kid, financial discrepancies, uh, any form of accidents, like car accidents and disabilities, whether you get them sometime during your life or you were born with them. Not only are there contingencies outside of your control, but many people simply do not want to pursue these goals, simply because it is not desirable to them. If someone does not want to get married or have kids, that's literally fine. Who cares what they do? Well, I guess we can answer that question. Straight people, they 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 care. Um, but a th- one notable thing to mention about like this heteronormative timeline is that it it very much conflicts with queerness and the lifestyle that queer people um want to live. You know, oftentimes heteronormative timeline like in like the lifestyle that they expect this cookie cutter thing it it is not it is not applicable for many queer people that's the other problematic notion so all right a few deep breaths are needed (laughs) so we have addressed all these queer theorists uh hooks moraga and striker and our socially constructed heterosexual cookie cutter lifestyle and system that is instilled in the present day. So we have been waiting for the next part since the beginning of this episode. Drum roll, please. So what now? What do we do at this point? The moment I was asked what can queer future look like to me, I won't lie, my very first answer was and I quote, I don't know what I want the future to even look like, let alone a queer one. Being frustrated by this problem, I was extremely pissed off by this problem because I had no idea how to answer this. I had to talk uh, this whole thing through with my best friend first since uh, they're very much like into these like type of conversations about like the future and like queerness. One of the first questions they asked me was, well, what do you value the most when it comes to queerness? I responded with intersectionality all the way. I wrote podcasts and created several projects regarding the importance of this, especially when it comes to feminism, queerness, and transgender-related theory. To me, intersectionality is simply an overlapping like marginalized identities, further like elucidating privileges and experiences that this individual or group faces. I usually describe it as like minorities within minorities, and like these identities are like absolutely infinite. And like there's a huge number of experiences and privileges individuals have due to their own distinct identities, and many that we can't even even like think of but what makes portraying a queer future so difficult is the fact that it may not even satisfy and benefit everyone from these said unique communities uh let me go off topic real quick because this does tie into what i'm about to say regarding this um point about uh about intersectionality and you know these the in queer future so inspired by strikers my words to uh frank frankenstein my performance paper was quite its own healing process of coming to terms of my own oppressor within which was internalized how to normativity of you know like the gender binarity as i was writing my theory incorporated my personal experiences i concluded at the end that non-binary is undefinable 
the ambiguity of the gender is what makes it so beautiful. And this is very much the same application seen with queerness and the future itself. Ambiguity. Never forget that word. Ambiguity. I honestly believe that the reason I don't have a concrete answer about queer future is because heteronormativity has functioned in a way where definitions are placed in our society and constructs the way we already live. Wouldn't you say that defining queer future just would just be enabling this heteronormative behavior? I don't know about you, but the conclusion I have come down to terms with from this queer theory course is that anything with queerness is meant to be undefinable and ambiguous. So that ambiguity allows more possibilities for especially individuals that have many, many, many identities that intersect. So yes, that is the answer to my question. What does the future look like to me? The answer is, I don't know. It's undefinable, which I believe should be the point when the term queer enters the picture. It is meant to be ambiguous. Queerness is meant to be ambiguous. And I think the ambiguous of it is what makes... I don't know, like, I say my, one of my values when it comes to, like, queerness and, like, feminism is intersectionality. I think ambiguity is, like, the answer and, like, the biggest, like, benefit for intersectionality because it opens a lot of possibilities. So, yeah. That was, that was the first part of the question. The second part of the question is now, how do we get there to this queer future that I just talked about? So the very first step is to do what I have just done this entire podcast episode, address the elephants in the room. It is very much why I started off with the excerpts from Bell Hooks, Theory as Liberatory Practice. Think of Hooks' purposes and some possible initiatives on why she wants theory to be seen as something one can use for healing. Her vision has been seen in the healing processes of Morago and Stryker's pieces, respectively. Now let's jump right into that again. You guys must be so sick of it by now, but it's alright. What makes those theorists so powerful in their work? Those theories are anecdotes as a whole. Those are healing processes itself. Whether that is Maraca healing from her internalized racism or heteronormativity and Stryker with her internalized transphobia before coming in terms with her gender, this the sacred like information i call it sacred of course but like the information spoken and acted by like these incredible people encourages the audience to call for action and like you know to be better as human beings collectively like for the future uh if anything one way to think about it is ultimately that self-determination as a like is a healing process one may be thinking, well, like, how does the past work into that construction of the future as ambiguous? So we see this on top of, like, you know, like, the three theorists when they talk about, like, you know, their past experiences and how it shapes them today, like, in the present at the time when they were writing it and all that. So on top of seeing this within the three theorists, a very specific song comes into mind the moment I hear the phrase, theorizing the future. Now, this song is the most iconic party song, and it may be unexpected, uh, wait for it. Just wait for it. It is unwritten by Natasha Bedingfield. And I know it may seem silly now hearing that from me, but when you interpreted the lyrics itself, you would agree that this song is very much fitting to like my perspectives on the queer future. Um, the Literally, the lyrics are so fascinating. You might as well just label this song the queer song. <laughs> um, so here I am just going to pretend that I'm a professor assigning y'all to solely listen to the song and read the lyrics online. It is all up for your interpretation at this point. And, uh, and this is the part where I reference the song. So, 
quote, the rest is still unwritten. But with that said, thank you for tuning in with me and my theory about feminist, queer, and trans theory. Uh, it has been lovely healing with all of you. Um, I sure as hell been healing uh, by letting all of these thoughts out. But I will be signing off with the iconic song that I've just mentioned. So have a lovely night. Kisses. Feel-